Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you today. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who does reign as king now. And we praise him now, and we look forward to praising him in eternity. We pray now as, you, as we come to your word that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit. Help not one of us leave here unchanged by what we hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And have a seat. Does God have your back? It's an important question. Will God defend, vindicate, or even eventually avenge his people? In a world full of hatred, hostility, and even persecution, does the Lord have our back? Given the growing animosity toward believers today, many of us may doubt it. We struggle to believe that God will come to our aid or to our rescue. We worry endlessly about what the future holds for us, for our children, grandchildren. We wonder if evil will keep increasing all the more and forever go unchecked. We confidently say, if God is for us, who can be against us? But we simultaneously question, is God really still for us? Is God on our side? I think we can start today by asking, are we on the Lord's side? Are we seeking him? Because some of us may be naively assuming we are, but in truth, we're not. So we need to hear an emergency alert today that warns us to turn back to him. On the other hand, if we are on the Lord's side, as I believe many of us are, then the answer to our questions about whether the Lord will defend us or judge the evil that oppresses us is an unequivocal, resounding yes. God does have our back. He has demonstrated this throughout history, and he has promised us this for the present and the future. To see this, I invite you to grab a Bible with me and turn to Zephaniah chapter 2. Zephaniah chapter 2. In recent weeks, we studied chapter 1 of Zephaniah's small Old Testament book of prophecy, and again, if you have never turned there before, don't be, don't be ashamed of that. Go ahead and use the page number on the screen to find your place. But Zephaniah the prophet prophesied in the 7th century before Christ in the days of the good king Josiah in the nation of Judah. But his prophecy, as we saw, starts out very dark, focusing on God's comprehensive judgment how he'll sweep up all creation to be judged. It's both inevitable and it's understandable when we really think about it. This will take place on what is called the great day of the Lord, 
a term that's used to describe a number of past, present, and future occasions when the Lord comes to save, judge, reward, punish, or renew, or all of the above. There would be a day of the Lord in Zephaniah's near future when Judah was judged. There was a a great day of the Lord when God's judgment fell on his son, Christ, on the cross. And there is yet a future day of the Lord when Christ will return and steal the show once again and once for all. Zephaniah's main message was that the day of the Lord would be well-deserved and devastating. So, what could the people of Judah do about it? What can we do about the day of the Lord? Chapter 1 basically eviscerated our reliance on things other than the Lord. Political and religious leaders, economic or financial status, goods and houses, food or drink, mighty heroes, strong cities, proud nations, powerful militaries, our own strength, our health, our wealth, all of these will be decimated by the day of the Lord. Only the Lord himself could save us. And we saw how at the beginning of chapter 2. You can read with me. It, says, it basically says that we may, be, we may be delivered on the Lord's day by humbly seeking him now. Look at it. It says, gather together. This is verse 1 of chapter 2. Gather together, yes, gather together, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you this day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Where we start today flows directly out of that slightly more hopeful verse. There's a a four at the beginning of verse four that connects the two passages. So he says, seek the Lord, all you humble, seek righteousness, seek humility for... So... You follow the logic, logic, keep in mind that this chapter we're going to read today is answering why we should seek the Lord. Look at it. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites. Those places or people might as well be made-up names for all we know. It could be kind of like saying, for Krypton shall be deserted. Vulcan shall be a desolation. Kalerman's people will be driven out. Xandar uprooted. Woe to Mordor! (laughs) But no, these were real historical peoples and nations. They were located to the west of Israel, living along the Mediterranean Sea. And they had been perpetual enemies of God's people. You'll recognize the names better in the second half of verse 5. It says, The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. 
and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. So what we have here is God promising to desolate some of his people's chronic enemies. But if you were with us the last few weeks and read chapter 1, you might think, wasn't he just talking about judging Judah? Like, God's own chosen people had gone astray, and they were going to pay for it. So, why this sudden pivot to talking about the Canaanites or Philistines being judged? It's quite the interesting logic Zephaniah uses. He's basically saying, seek the Lord now, not just because judgment may fall upon you, but because judgment is going to fall upon all these others. In essence, they were cautionary tales for the people of God. In other words, the prophetic ruin of their enemies was meant to incite the restoration of God's people. And so we see that the Lord will judge all peoples in order to restore the humble. The Lord will judge, even at times ruin, all peoples in order to restore humble people. It's almost like Zephaniah is standing in Jerusalem with a compass. And he's pointing in one direction after the other. God is going to judge peoples in the west. And God is going to judge peoples in the east and in the south and in the north. He starts like we saw in the west, saying that they're scheduled for demolition. They're slated for destruction. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no, there, until no inhabitant is left. Woe is a, a sorrowful warning, like, oh, what sorrow awaits you. Why was this the case for the Philistines? Because, says the Lord, was personally against them. His word was against them. Because of their history of evil, oppression, and idolatry, the Philistines would be wiped out. And I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. Even if that's exaggerated language, which it likely is, they'd be left in ruin. Now, some of you came today thinking, I'll go to church to hear a positive, uplifting message. <laughs> but while the Bible doesn't indeed contain tons of good news, really good news, the best news ever, in fact, if you live contrary to God's ways, his word is actually bad news for you. If you are content in your complacency towards God, you're immorality, or idolatry. What you need today isn't some pick-me-up, pat-me-on-the-back pep talk. You need to be forewarned that you are on a path that leads to destruction. And really, this goes for all of us. If we are ever going to hear the good news 
from God's word, we have to hear the bad news first, that we are all natural-born enemies of God, of our creator. We all deserve to face his wrath, like the peoples described here in Zephaniah. And without the Lord's intervention, we are all inescapably destined for it. So here, the oracle against Canaan, and here in it, an oracle against peoples of today, even us. Verse 4 mentions Ashdod's people being driven out at noon, implying this would happen quickly. This, would, this was especially striking because this same city of Ashdod was once besieged by Egypt, and it took Egypt 29 years to conquer it. It would take God one morning. Historically, we know God used Babylon to do this. Around a century later, Babylon was able to just storm the city in broad daylight and overwhelm it in no time. It's a testament, I think, to, to God's sovereign control over history, his supreme authority over nations. He, is, he has always powerfully guided them towards his own ends and purposes. We may feel deeply sobered by these things, like by the judgment God poured out on various nations here. That's okay. But you don't need to weep over them. We can trust the righteous, holy judge of all to do what is perfectly right and to only give nations what they fully deserve. But the judgment on these enemy nations, like we've seen, wasn't only a judgment on their sin. As a matter of fact, they weren't even Zephaniah's primary intended audience. Judah was. Why prophesy against a people who didn't hear it and likely wouldn't have responded anyway. I think we see that additional, deeper purpose of the Lord here, to restore the humble people among his people. God judged the Philistines in order to inspire repentance and faith in Judah. Would they learn from the destruction of their neighbors to the west? Would they see it and take note? Remember, Zephaniah just proclaimed doom and gloom for Jerusalem and Judah. God wasn't showing partiality here, and his plans would prosper with or without Israel. But he had covenanted with Israel and Judah in a special way, in his grace. So he wasn't going to let them just destroy themselves forever. He'd keep his word. And therefore, God decided to preserve a remnant of his people who would survive through his judgment. And his judgment would actually prove to be a boon, a blessing to these people. Look at verse 6. It says, And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnants of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Now, this idea of a remnant is a common picture in the Old Testament prophets. It shows how both God, his, how severe his punishment would be that only a few would survive, and it shows how gracious God's mercy is that 
some would survive. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze. But you see what the Lord was doing here? He was multitasking. Right? He was judging wicked Philistia, judging wicked Judah, and at the same time, preserving, restoring, and blessing a remnant of his people. The Philistines' territory, their ruins, would eventually turn into grazing grounds for sheep, both literal and figurative sheep. Shepherds would be able to peacefully watch their flocks there, and the Lord would lead the sheep of his own pasture there, his people, letting them graze, it says, making them lie down in green pastures. And all this would happen because the Lord was graciously mindful of them. Do you see that? The end of verse 7. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Other versions say God will visit his people in kindness, care for them, and look out for them. So, beleaguered believer of 2023. You may or may not feel like you have many enemies, but Jesus does. And if you belong to him, you will too, on some level. I'm not up here today just crying. Persecution, when we all have it still pretty chill in the West. But no one would deny the temperature is rising against Christianity. Now, we are commanded as Christ's followers to love and pray for our enemies, but that is never a guarantee that they will love us back. We should yearn for their own restoration to the Lord, their salvation. Some of them, like the Apostle Paul, will be miraculously saved, perhaps by our witness, but many of them won't be and will remain avowed enemies of God to their grave. Now, we don't look forward to dancing on their graves, so to speak. There's, gloating has no place here. But we can take comfort that God sees everything others may throw at us now or in the future, and God will judge all peoples. And whenever he does, he will restore and exalt the humble. So no matter how small or how alone we may feel now, no matter what we might lose now, no matter what sorrows we may need to face to endure before the day of the Lord comes, the Lord will be mindful of us. The Lord will restore our fortunes. Isn't that good news? I recently explained that humility or being humble isn't just hiding yourself or hating yourself. Neither is it being weak or a walkover. It's seeing yourself as who you really are. As a creature who belongs to the creator, and as a sinner who needs a savior. 
So do you see yourself that way? Have you humbled yourself before the Lord, seeing your own deep-seated sin issues in you, not just in everyone else? Are you humbled, not only by God's holiness and power, but by his inexplicable love for you? And have you sought him out as your only hope and prayer for salvation? Because though the Lord Jesus had no sins for which to die, he chose to die in our place. Rising again from the grave, triumphing over sin and death forever. That's our only hope. So if you think of yourself as, as one of the humble or the faithful of the land, seek the Lord today. If you know you're not humble, but want to be, seek him now. If you think this isn't a big deal and life's under control and you'll be fine, then you're not humble. And you need to humble yourself before the Lord. We all need him more than our lungs need air. And when we become humble, it doesn't lead to self-loathing. It leads to self-forgetfulness and freedom and joy. To repeat a great quote from Gavin Ortland I gave you recently, it says, being a big deal is a burden. Humility, in contrast, means you don't interpret everything in relation to yourself, and you don't need to. It is the death of the narrow, suffocating filter of self-referentiality. It's the nourishing, calming acceptance that you have a small place in a much larger story, that your life is being guided by something far bigger than your plans or controls and serving something far bigger than your sole benefit. Humility is the joy of embracing life as it is meant to be lived. And I hope, I pray that you and I would really truly embrace that today. The Lord will judge all peoples in order to restore the humble. And we see more of the same in verses 8 and 9 as Zephaniah turns to face the east. He says, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Now, the Old Testament is littered with stories of Ammonites and Moabites, specifically those two nations, oppressing or insulting God's people. They tried to curse them, to disgrace them, to humiliate them, to mock them. They were known for this reviling. But let me ask you, are you getting tired of all the insults heaped our way these days? All the name-calling, the verbal abuse, the false accusations of hatred or bigotry. If so, for one, you need to stop reading the comments on the internet. <laughs> Get offline, spend time with the people around you. It tends to be far more civil there and better for your mental health. Still, 
The insults and hostility are there, and they are increasing. They can be hard to bear. They hurt. It can be hard to not revile in return. And they can cut us deeply, especially if they come from close friends or family. To paraphrase John Calvin, he said that there is more bitterness in one reproach than in a hundred deaths, especially when the wicked triumph and the world applauds. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Like, this is a word for us. That God hears all the taunts, all the revilings of so-called modern-day Moabites or Ammonites. He hears the boasts, the strutting that comes from them feeling superior to us or to others. He sees the people who set themselves up against his own people. And this stirs up his righteous anger and moves him to respond. Verse 9, Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnants of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. So again, therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts. This is God swearing an oath that as surely as he lives, he's going to do this. And as much as life itself is bound up in him, that's how certain his judgment will be. And don't miss the name that Zephaniah uses for God here. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Yahweh, the, the Lord of the angel armies of heaven, the powerful commander of heavenly warriors, and also the personal covenantal God of his people Israel. Not only is God so utterly powerful, but he also cares deeply about his people. So, do you suppose it wise to stand against him or against those he loves? Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah. That's quite interesting because if you know the story, Moab and Ammon both trace their origin back to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction. They, were, they came from Lot's daughters and the, their scandalous plot described in Genesis 19. So this is some poetic justice that they would become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And while God's judgment is always sobering, we see his humble people again reap the benefits. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. In this reversal, in verse 9, I think we see shadows of the gospel again and its results. Because think about it. No one 
was more unjustly taunted and reviled in Scripture than Jesus when he died. He was scorned by mankind, despised by the people, mocked by nearly all who saw him, stared at and gloated over. Romans 15.3 says that the reproaches of those who reproach God fell on Christ. And yet, in his death and resurrection, God turned the tables and vindicated his son. His enemies were defeated, and we now reap the plunder of his victory. Jesus himself warned that it would be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for the peoples who reject his messengers that he sends out. May none of us doubt, dismiss, or deny God's judgment that's coming. As Ian Duguid puts it, the serpent in the Garden of Eden was the first to deny the reality of God's judgment when he said to Eve, you will not surely die. Satan's declaration was a bald-faced lie, however. Nobody leaves this world alive. The Lord is the judge of all nations, and he will be our judge as well. At times, it may appear to us as if some people are getting away with it. We may struggle with the apparent prosperity of the wicked. Ultimately, Zephaniah assures us that nobody gets away with anything. There is a heavenly judge who will call all people to account. If we fail to recognize this, this truth, we will inevitably grow bitter or cynical in the face of intractable evil and injustice, whether personal or global. Get what he's saying? Like when evil is committed against us, or we're disturbed by what we see in this world, no one's denying that it can be really, really hard but we still ultimately have a choice. We can hold on to the evil and really harden into bitterness or cynicism, even nihilism. Or we can release the burden and entrust it to the hands of God, the holy judge, which causes the evil that we've experienced to begin to lose its power over us. That is never an easy task. But it should be an easy choice. And the Spirit can help us here. God's judgment will fall on those who reject him and revile his people. You can count on it. He'll honor the humble but that's only half the reason that God will judge all peoples. See, Moab and Ammon, or Ammon weren't just known for reviling. They were also known for their pride. They were proud nations. And thus, verse 10 goes, This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. Really, the taunts were the outward sign of inner pride. God will judge all peoples in order to restore the humble. And the other side of that coin is the Lord will judge all peoples in order to desolate the proud. The Lord will judge all nations and people groups in order to desolate the proud. And if you think about it, that is a constant biblical theme. 
The self-exalted will be humbled, and the humble will be exalted. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And pride characterized the nation surrounding Judah in Zephaniah's day. And I don't need to tell you that pride deeply characterizes our own day and nation. We are proud of our pride. Pride is no little harmless sin. It's at the root of all sin, thinking that we know better than God. It's what caused Lucifer to become the devil, what led Adam and Eve to the fall. Pride really would deserve God's full judgment even if it were the only sin on earth. For Israel's enemies, their lot in return, it says, or their wages for their pride would be desolation. And again, in their their arrogance, they went after the people belonging to the Lord of hosts. It's like a junior hockey team just skating circles around a lesser skilled team, destroying them only to have Connor McDavid come out of the other team's dressing room to play. Or like a bully picking on a kid, only to have that kid's bodybuilding dad show up. Israel and Judah weren't just some tiny, annoying nation. They belonged to the Lord. Verse 11. The Lord will be awesome against them. Awesome there doesn't mean cool. (laughs) It means terrifying. Awesome in judgment. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. Now that's literally saying he is going to starve false gods to death. That they'll shrivel up and blow away. What a picture. Think about it. It's not like false gods could eat. But if they could, how would they be fed? Well, the the people that worship them would bring sacrifices and offerings to them, and that is how they would be fed. Nothing's changed today. You walk into a Hindu temple here in Ottawa, and you'll see bowls or trays of food being placed before their false gods. But, What would happen if the land became devastated and no crops could grow anymore? Or what if the people themselves were wiped out? No offerings, no worshipers, no food for you. They'd starve to death. And that all leads to a marvelous turn of events. Look at it. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. Don't miss it. And to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. Palmer Robertson explains, when the gods of the nations are humbled, the peoples of the earth will have no choice. They shall worship him, every man from his own place. Zephaniah sees the worship of the true God spreading outward to the ends of the earth. Every nation shall become sacred as a center for the worship of the Lord. 
Isn't that great? After both Judah and the surrounding nations are desolated, people will turn to the Lord. But it's not just a tiny remnant of Jewish people who do so anymore. It's the world. All the lands of the nations shall bow down to him. And it's not just on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but each in their own place. Wherever they're found, the peoples of the world will bow down to the Lord. Now you tell me, when does this prophecy come true? When God brought Jews and Gentiles together as one people of God in Christ? When the church worships in spirit and in truth through Christ anywhere on earth? When the gospel is proclaimed to the uttermost parts of the globe? Yes, yes, and yes. As Robertson adds, the glorious day has come in which the sun never sets on the worshipers of the true God. And yet, this shall be fulfilled in an even greater way in the future. When we see a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Then, who shall fall on bended knee? All creatures of our God and King. Are you starting to sense that even in the midst of dark judgment, that light's beginning to poke through? There's desolation for all peoples, yes, but also now salvation for all peoples. God's plan is going to go global. Hold on to that ray of hope because our chapter today is still going to end in darkness. In verse 12, Zephaniah takes a really brief look to the south. says, you also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. Cush was located in Africa, in modern-day Ethiopia, Sudan, or southern Egypt. They weren't that prominent of an enemy to Judah, so they don't get major emphasis here. Nevertheless, it's the point on, points on the compass. They too are going to be judged by the Lord. Personally slain by his sword, he says. And then last, but not least at all, verse 13, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Assyria was the big kahuna of the day. The most powerful empire around. Nineveh was their capital city. They had been Judah's most threatening enemy for generations now. Like at any given year, they could have marched over and leveled Judah. Assyria had already been the doom of the northern kingdom of Israel. They were gone. In modern terms, imagine, okay, this is just a stupid example, but imagine if all the nations in North America were fighting against one tiny nation. Okay, and God told them, don't worry, I've got your back, I'm going to desolate Jamaica. And Honduras too. And the, the Bahamas are going to fall. 
Canada's not going to stand a chance. And, oh yeah, I'm going to decimate the USA. The mightiest nation in the world will be laid to waste. Left in ruins. Like, it would have been pretty easy to picture smaller or weaker nations falling, but not Assyria. The desolation Zephaniah describes is unbelievable. The greatest nation of its era squashed like a bug. The cultural metropolis of Nineveh turned into a ghost town. Look, verse 14. Herds shall lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. Like, that's a picture of civilization returning to wilderness. And scholars can't agree on what animals are being referred to here. Owls or hedgehogs or vultures or herons or among other options. But any of these creatures that are mentioned were deemed as unclean in Israel. So defiled animals would be making their homes among the ruins of Nineveh. Their hoots and bird calls would replace the sounds of the once vibrant city. Devastation on the threshold means rubble would be filling or blocking doorways. Cedar work was a sign of wealth and luxury in those days. So all their beautiful woodwork would be left exposed to the elements. Now, would you believe that this came to pass exactly like Zephaniah prophesied? Within about 300 years of this, the Greek commander and historian Xenophon passed through Nineveh and found it utterly abandoned with no trace of its former glory. So, final question for you today. Why do you think God judged Assyria like this? You can probably guess it by now. It has something to do with humility and pride, right? Right, look at verse 15. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Almost like a good riddance. Do you see the irony of it all? Nineveh thought itself as the greatest, the center of existence. They had the most wealth, the most power, the best military, the best architecture. They had no big external threats. People could just relax in leisure and pleasure and prosperity there. They, all other nations at the time really bowed to them. Everything revolved around them. Like No wonder their self-sufficiency got the better of them. They said of themselves what only God has the right to say. I am and there's no other. I stand alone. No one compares to me. Foreseeing their desolation, their ruins, Zephaniah proclaims, look at the exultant city now. 
They don't stand alone. They're totally alone. The presumptuous, proud city, the city of fun, ecstasy, revelry, a boisterous city. She thought she was secure. She thought nothing could topple her. She thought wrong. There are lessons here for us for sure. Like we somehow usually think that we're pretty humble people. But are we really? Or has our proud culture rubbed off on us? It's the air we breathe. And thus, how secure do we think we are? Do we see our fragility before God? How dismissive are we of the danger our culture or our nation is in? Thinking, why would anyone ever try to take us down? We're, we're so polite and nice. I recently saw a video that visually shows the world's most populous cities for the past 4,000 years. And you would see one great city after another surpassing each other. And I was amazed at the drastic ebb and flow of the dominant cities over the centuries. There were cities you'd expect, right? Babylon, Rome, Istanbul, Beijing, London, New York, Tokyo. Nineveh was on the list for its day. Then there were other cities I'd never even heard of before. Mari, Avaris, Gion, and others, which were, at one time, the greatest cities in the world. Never even heard of them. It was fascinating. And it made me think, behold, the exultant cities that live securely. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. There's only one who's faithful through it all. The I am. There's no one else like him. No one else. No one else can judge the nations in perfect wisdom and equity and justice. No one else would sacrifice himself in the greatest act of judgment and love of all time. Christ took the desolation of the cross that was poised against our hateful, proud, self-exultant hearts. His enemies mocked him, hissing and shaking their fists while he was lovingly taking our judgment in our place. Additionally, since his humble obedience is now credited to us who believe, we can now face his coming judgment with peace and confidence. There's no one like him. And no one else could bring about such a reversal that the nations facing his judgment would become the very trophies of his grace, giving him glory for all eternity. 
Returning to the picture of verse 11 as we close, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. Like, I love worshiping here at Calvary with you. Because every Sunday, I look around and it feels like a little taste of heaven. Right? I, we see people of all over the world coming from all over, from, with every skin tone, a multitude of different mother tongues from vastly different backgrounds and ages and life stages, all worshiping the same Lord together. Now, put yourself in the shoes of someone from Zephaniah's day and just try to imagine this scene that we get to experience every week. It would have been unfathomable to them. Yet here we are, brought together by the Lord from the north, south, east, and west. We are part of the fulfillment of Zephaniah's words right now as we worship from our place. And how much more marvelous will it be on the day we stand before God's throne? So, don't lose heart and don't lose faith. This is the God that is still on your side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Father in heaven, We pray that you would send Jesus soon. Right all the wrongs in our world. Bring about justice. Bring about renewal, restoration. And we pray in the meantime that you would save souls. We pray for anyone here now who has turned their back on you or has never come to you, draw them to yourself, we pray. And may we all stand together and worship you as you are worthy to be worshipped. There's no one like you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.